Hello out there. I'm Jennifer Kai Powell, the host of Tiny Little Victories. That's the podcast you're listening to right now. So thank you for listening to Tiny Little Victories. Tiny Little Victories is a podcast about people. It's about people sharing their stories about the things they love in life and the path that they created to get to where they are today. Sometimes I think we have to be the hero of a lot of people's stories. But one of the things about Tiny Little Victories that I think is so great is that every single person here has really been the hero of their own story, getting themselves on the path that they wanted, creating the reality that they wanted today, and just fearlessly pushing through until they came to this point. So my next guest is a good friend of mine named Harrison Berry. And I met Harrison several years ago when I got stuck in the sticky flypaper, his term, not mine, of Boise, Idaho. And Harrison and I create a podcast together about all the art and the food and the conversations and the people and the things that were happening happening in Boise for the short time that I was there. But the interesting thing about Harrison is he is a journalist, but before he was a journalist, he was sort of a Freud junkie studying Freud, perhaps on his way to being a psychologist, but something stopped him. And it was actually journalism that sort of made him pivot. So he's a very interesting person and has a lot of opinions on a lot of different things. So it's sort of like opening a book and you can pick any topic and he can speak on it. So sit back and enjoy this episode with my next guest, Harrison Berry. Tiny Little Victories. I am your host, Jennifer Kite Powell, and I am sitting here with a guy who used to be my co-host on another podcast called Culture Junkies, Harrison Perry. Hello, Harrison. Well, hello, Jennifer. <laughs> How are you? I'm so happy to hear your voice. It's like you have like the best radio voice ever. You're just, hello, I'm Harrison Perry. I love it. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, you're making me blush. So Harrison, he's in Boise, Idaho. And the reason why you're probably like, Boise, Idaho, have you noticed, Harrison, that on all like the butt of all the jokes lately on SNL, it's like, oh, he's from Boise, Idaho. Like there's always these jokes about the corn pole that's from Boise, Idaho. I mean, do you feel like that's a new thing or do you feel like South Dakota and now it's Boise, Idaho? I feel like it's really changed. Yeah. There was a, there was, a, I used to tell this joke a little bit that, that Boise was straddling the line between a cow town and an actual city. And <laughs> anymore, I see people dressed in like high fashion walking down the street. And it's because we have so many new people. The vibe has really yeah. changed. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think like we were talking about this earlier in our virtual green room before you came on, but we were talking about different types of cities and um, I'm going to do a stop right there because this is a crazy podcast and say, you guys, Harrison is super cool. He used to be the managing editor for um, Boise Weekly, which was this very cool weekly publication that came out about arts and culture and, you know, maybe some little tattletelling every now and then in a scantily clad article about who was doing what. That was my judgment. And but but now he's moved on. You're like a comms senior comms guy at Boise State University, sort of turned to the dark side in a way, right? Taking your journalism and applying it for the big the big wheel. Yeah. So I ran into this moment during the pandemic when I realized that it was very hard for me to continue doing my job. I kept attending mm-hmm. these rallies where people were unmasked and not taking well deliberately yeah. not taking the pandemic seriously. Uh, and I remember seeing people in person talking about it as though it were a hoax and talking about how their oh my God. rights were more important. It's, it's, it's a very Idaho thing for these yeah. kinds of people to descend on the Capitol. But I realized that it was just, at this point, almost impossible for me to look at this in an unjaded mm. way. And so I knew yeah. that I had to leave. Um, it just so happened that I felt as though the organization itself was coming into a rocky patch. Mm. And so I hopped. And my... <laughs> Well, yeah, and my um, my rationale was... I think that's was... smart, though. I think that's smart. Like, you've got to look after yourself, and you're a fantastic writer and journalist. So, you know, I mean, why not apply those skills and that experience in a different way someplace else? Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, not to not to uh you know diminish the work that had been done by boise state but uh, i really felt like i had something to add to it uh and mm-hmm. we had that we've been doing a lot of like larger feature type stories really trying to uh, you know increase the professionalization of our communications team and what's called advancement that's a term that not a lot of people mm-hmm. I, I know that i was certainly unaware of it but um <laughs> basically we are the open palm of the university um, I love that. We work with philanthropy, but it's also a lot of alumni relations type communications. Oh, really? I I love that. I mean, I, I want to talk about what you're doing later. I know I was skipping around a little, which is what I do, but I didn't realize that you had left Boise Weekly because of this sort of uh, the politics at the time for what was going on to cover to do your job, like to cover rallies. And I think that's really interesting because – People leave jobs for various reasons, but part of your job is to go out into crowds and cover something for news, but people aren't protecting themselves. Like, it's really putting your life in danger in a way. Like, why yeah. do that? It also had a lot to do with the rhetoric. It, it made me, uh, first of all, to, in order to be a journalist, you have to care. Like, you really have to be care. You really yeah. have to care. And um, I, you know, maybe call it burnout, call it what you will, but... Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I still care, but I just found that it was caring to the point of pain. Yeah. And, you know, I love that you, I mean, I think universities are, have really changed a lot in terms of their communications. You're talking about, you know, creating larger feature stories for the university. And I know that Arizona State University created this magazine called Thrive Magazine. They have a, a fantastic editor there, also had been a, a journalist for a very long time. Um, she's very interesting and she's, like tried to manifest the um, Fast Company, like Wired Magazine, QZ format in the University Magazine. And it's really quite good. Like you read the stories, you're like, wait, what am I reading again? Is this a university or is this real like feature type stories? I think think that's a great trend because it's all about bringing to light, you know, 
what these universities are doing through their students or alumni. I think it's a, I think it's a great match. Well, and it's a good place for for journalists to go. I knew I know quite a few mm. of the people that I work with came from the journalism world uh, yeah. because the university is a place where you can care, like where you can really yeah. get behind the work that yeah. you're doing. We're everywhere journalists, right? We're just like in in there. We're like in the system, in the machine. <laughs> <laughs> but you but you're in Boise. We started to talk about this and like you talk up between a cow town and like a real city, but like we talked about this on our podcast seven years ago together, but Boise, I've heard you say Boise is like a baby city. Like it's it's not even an adolescent city yet. And where I think like the difference between a baby city and a teenage city and a big ass grown up city, like where is Boise? Is Boise still a baby city or? In a lot of ways, it still is. So Boise yeah. is interesting because it's also the capital and arguably the most, you know, pound for pound uh <laughs> for lack of a better word, liberal or progressive place in the state. I mean, you could make the yeah. argument that Sun Valley area is very progressive as well, but, but Boise yeah. is really kind of a standout. Um, yeah, it's a safe place, and, yes. <laughs> and, well, it, it is and it isn't because oh, okay. because we are also the capital, uh, Boise gets a lot of attention from legislators. Legislators come, I mean, we have yes. basically citizen legislators, they come in from their cornfields or you know they're potato patches they're yeah you know and they're like fracking they're are, fracking they're, they're fracking um, <laughs> but they show up and they're like these buildings are just too high and and so there's <laughs> <What>? this <laughs> well not actually but but they do yeah. tend to meddle in, in city affairs because they mm-hmm. and uh, you know i would posit because they just <laughs> don't like the city vibe so funny that you should I love that you said that because I had met this very young doctor I don't know if we can even call her a doctor she's like in medical school but doing some practice on humans and she was like yeah Dallas is such a huge city I'm like wait see to me Dallas is not a big city I live in Dallas to me it's like just a regular sized city and she's like oh it's like the big city like bright lights a big city all the okay yeah I guess it is compared to you know tiny little hamlet that she lived in in Louisiana like we won't even talk about Louisiana here, but yeah. Well, and there's a, yeah, I mean, there's a kind of uh, trick of perspective there because, you know, if you're coming from New York, which is a city of 9 million people, or, you <laughs> yeah. know, like if you're coming from Paris, yeah. another 9 yeah. million people, yeah. you show up in Dallas and what is Dallas? Like three, 4 million, maybe? I don't know. I think maybe four, like, and also Dallas is sprawl city. Like there's just like right. whole other cities that they call Dallas, like 20 minutes from here, but you don't want to go there. It's sort of like, you know, the last of us type thing. You just want to like get in the car go really fast and fly through there yeah well you know dallas is still like a pretty respectable city but i think if you stack it up next to like really big international cities then yeah no i mean it's very like it's very much a regional city yeah it is i think that's a good point it's a regional city and i think after you know living in new york and living in paris and like copenhagen i think copenhagen's a small city but a grown-up city i think it's small Mm. but grown up where i think that dallas is I think Dallas gets a lot of comparisons like, like, oh, it's Austin is the whole city in Texas. I would take Dallas a hundred times over going to Austin, Texas. Like to me, the vibe there is just no bueno. And I, but I, you know, lived in Boise, which is where I met you. And I, you're right. It is a baby city, but I mean, it has these little pockets of art and culture, which has these little beginnings of maybe going to be a teenage city. Right. And uh, so I've been doing a lot of freelance journalism on the side because, oh, uh, cool. yeah, because I can. And yeah, 
Um, I was talking to this uh, very, very young chef here. He's now on his uh, fifth James Beard, uh, regional James Beard nomination, Chris Kamori. works for a restaurant called Ken. Um, oh and I'm gosh. beginning to see all of these, you know, like you're saying, these very grown up kind of kind of nods yeah. about well, like, yeah. well, this this restaurant is doing, uh, you know, like nouveau cuisine, and it's yeah, um, uh, they have like this elaborate tip sharing arrangement and health insurance, and it's really changing the game because you know, in a lot of small I towns, like that. you just don't think about what happens behind the counter, but all all of a sudden oh, yes. these rather more. Um, rather more developed ideas about how to run a restaurant are coming to bear. Yeah. And I think that that begins to spread. You get more of that feel that, you know, this is a place mm-hmm. where, you know, you can grab a burger or you can go do the five course yeah. uh, meal with the wine pairings. I love that because I think, you know, when I was there, we talked on the pod culture junkies, we talked about like the coffee scene that was growing, the taco scene. But I think you make a very good point about the James Beard because there was a restaurant there that had opened. It was only open like two nights a week. They did two sittings. The food was remarkable. I will say that Dallas has very doesn't have one Michelin star restaurant at all. You're kidding. Not that that's no. Isn't that crazy? It's not like it's the hallmark of great food, but <clears throat> excuse me. But also, I don't think there's that many James Beard. I think I'm gonna do just some data on this, but. I actually think that you guys might have more James Beard nominees and winners in Boise because I think it's probably easier to create that there than it is in Dallas with this big flashy like we just don't have any. We don't well, we don't have any. You know, one of the one of the questions I asked Chris was um, you know, are is Boise getting better or is it getting noticed? And I think that I think Good there's question. a little bit of that going on, right? Like Boise is it's the I, I believe it is the most rem, the most remote metropolitan area in the country. Like we're 300 miles from anywhere, and mm-hmm. what's so what's so what's interesting about that is that we have uh, grabbed the attention of places like the New York Times or like various mm-hmm. magazines. We used to be flyover country, and now we're this undiscovered country. And I think yeah. that contributes to the kinds of accolades that we get. I agree. I agree, and I think the Tree Fort experience there is remarkable like i anybody that goes anybody that i brought in from new york that was there when i came out we're like this is an amazing festival like the caliber of um musicians the the blend of like the science the people they were bringing in there around science but also i just think the way the venue was set up it's 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 a little more it's more enjoyable you can walk around downtown go see a really cool band and then go to dinner and then go home like it creates a different kind of way to enjoy something. So maybe your point about doing something differently, doing something differently to create a growing market is sort of what Boise's doing. I mean, politics aside, let's put all the politics aside. Because <laughs> <For laughs> you can't. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So I think there's something really um, interesting about you and you may laugh at this or maybe you're like, oh no, but you ride your bike everywhere. You don't use a car at all. Do you, are you still doing that? I still do. Um, my girlfriend has a car, but uh, no, Uh-oh. I do. I do ninety-five percent of my trips. Oh no, is that like a requirement for dating? You're like you can't have a car. You can only use your car ninety percent if I date you, like ten percent of the time. Oh no, no. I, I mean, <laughs> she has her life. I have mine. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean, everything in my life is within a couple of miles. Like I've got. Yeah. I have several grocery stores. I have my place of yeah. work. It's it's all there. Downtown is is about a mile away. Like, yeah, I love that. Bikeable. about 
Yes, totally. And I think you're sort of known for that biking around. Like you bike around, you wear that like signature jumper sweater that you wear. And and I think that 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 I yeah, that you're a, you're a full-time bike commuter and I love it. And I think Boise's perfect for that. But you I think just take it to the next level because you still look good. Some of those people that bike around look like slovenly, right? They've got their spandex on, they get there and change, but you arrive as if you just had a little bike around around Oxford. Like that's how you look when you ride your bike. Oh yeah, just on my my little cruiser. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Now, when you were in eighth grade, you wrote about this that you wanted to be a therapist and you used to carry around this book of Freud with you. I mean, my question to you is this, Harrison: Why Freud? Why Freud? So funny you mentioned. And not that. Jung, right? <laughs> well. So Freud and Jung are both uh, here on my bookshelf right next to me. The original okay. the original book that was taken from me. Do you want me to tell the story? Yeah, I 100% want you to tell the story because you tell it better than I tell it. It's your story. <laughs> so I was, in the, uh, I was in the eighth grade, and I was taking a journalism class from Catherine Ling, and she pronounced it exactly like that because she was this deeply eccentric person. Anyway, at the time, I was pretty invested in Freud. I thought Freud was awesome, and I wanted to be a psychotherapist. I wanted to be like a, <laughs> a doctor doing this kind of work for people. Yeah, um, I love Reading that. through Freud, you know, like reading Beyond the Pleasure Principle or something, like his crazy thing on Leonardo da Vinci that's based almost entirely on a mistranslation. Um, but, uh, but I was into it, and I thought it was really cool. And... Um, one morning I was sitting there reading this book in class because I didn't care about school and <laughs> Catherine Ling uh, grabs a book out of my hands and throws the biggest tantrum I've ever seen a teacher throw out wow. a classroom in my life. Just like, how could you? I mean, you get, you get fired for that today, right? You just be like, you're out of here. Well, you know, I, it wasn't like she said anything actually inappropriate, but she was clearly flustered. And um, yeah. Anyway, uh, after class, she, she, well, first of all, she takes the book away from me. He's like, I'm going to force you to pay attention. But, uh, but after class, she hands the book back and she's like, I used to do this. And I got tired of, at the end of the hour, taking these people who I just completely deconstructed and shoving them out the door. Oh and gosh. that was the beginning of my journalism career. I've been doing journalism since I was in the eighth grade. That is such a good story. So she was a therapist. And then she became a journalism person. And then you wanted to be a therapist. And then that was your pivot. Like, would you say that's your tiny little victory in a way? Was that particular moment in time the shift for you? Well, that's one of my tiny little stories. I like to think about yeah. it in terms of like, well, I got to skip a step. Like, I didn't have to. Oh, yeah. I didn't have to go through the therapy stage before I got to the journalism stage. Yeah, can you imagine? You would have like twenty more years of school. Like it would just be. But why Freud, not not Jung or somebody else? Like, what was your fascination with him at in eighth grade? Well, so Freud was just kind of who I got to first, and I, okay. you know, I've also read a fair bit of Jung ever since. And uh, first of all, both of them are are deeply flawed. We no longer we no longer seriously use their, their methodologies. I mean, Freud came back with, um, to, to quote someone else, like the Gorgon's head, right? Like the truth that there is more to people yeah. than what we can, than what, than we realize. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, Jung's observation essentially is that we're, you know, governed by these social constructs, like we call mm -hmm. them, um, you know, archetypes. Which I think is a little, I think this is, I, I think social constructs, like, I mean, yes, these guys are, to me, like dated, we don't follow them so much. I think Jung, for me, 
is more like these social constructs, which we do live our lives around today. Everything is a social construct. Who you hang out yeah. with, especially with social media, you know, how you're programmed with your parents. Well, I would tell people to read both, right? Because uh, first of all, Freud kind of focuses on our interiority and Jung seems a little bit more interested in our exteriority. Um, you can't yes, live without yes. both. Yeah, it's sort of like the Orwell and Aldous Huxley-like debate about how culture would affect your lives. It's like these two, all these old white guys like talking about how we need to live our lives. It's 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 sad but true. That's kind of where the canon comes from is a, a series of just a, this this continuum of old dead white men, um, some of whom actually <laughs> are, are very valuable uh, and yeah. from whom I've gained a lot of inspiration. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, you know, excited to include more voices into that canon, build it up. Yeah, what kind of how what so making the switch for you to journalism? What what was the first piece that you wrote? Do you remember when you like went to I know you went to you went to school in Iowa at a very fantastic journalism school, right? Yeah, so I went yeah. so my education journey um North Junior High where I uh, encountered <laughs> Catherine Lang of Boise High for the Boise Highlights where I was on the masthead. Um if you look wow. at the if you look at the period um print copies up on the masthead it was a photo of me with duct tape over my mouth um oh, I, can I'm prove I still have that I, yeah i, I want to see it i'm gonna go look this up because that that's uh <laughs> i gotta i gotta see that that also makes sense to me knowing you <laughs> yeah i i have a hard i've had a, a much harder time shutting up then and i have a hard time shutting up now no, um, I don't think I don't think we should shut up. I mean, I think you should just keep talking. Just keep talking. Just, I'll just shut roll. up. You keep talking. Yeah, just go. Uh, yeah, Boise High, Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, a place so nice they named it twice, and where I worked I just on think, the newspaper. For I just three think years. you like. I just think you like to say Walla Walla because that's such a cool name, Walla Walla. It, it rolls right off the tongue, right? It does. Walla Walla, Washington. Yeah. Um, they sent me onions when uh, when I early um, what is it like early committed. Oh, a box yeah, of six onions. Yeah. Oh my God. They're so delicious though. Those but, were so expensive. Yeah. But it's like, okay, onions, is that kind of like an enticement for me to continue to come here? Okay, fine. <laughs> you gotta love, yeah. I mean, there's as much sugar in them as an apple. And, uh, oh, they're so sweet. <laughs> but, um, yeah, after, after college, it was grad school, University of Iowa School of Journalism mm -hmm. and Mass Communication. And, uh, so I, I came back to Boise thinking that I'd only spend a couple of weeks or a couple of months out here um, <laughs> getting some clips, and then I'd jet off to some bigger, more interesting city. Uh, but uh, I got a grown-up city, paper. right? Yeah, a grown-up city. Yeah, we called Sticky Flypaper. Yeah, Sticky Flypaper of Boise. But you didn't – so you you came back. You, it makes sense to get stuff together. But what was it that kept you in the Sticky Flypaper? Do you remember or just – Yeah, you know uh, – not to be crass about it, but it was power, right? Like it was, it was the fact that you could oh. walk down the street and people knew who you were. And there was just something really comforting and fun and cool about that. Yeah. I don't, remains I don't that think way that's to crass. Day. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's interesting because why, why not? Why is that not a good thing? Because it makes you happy because you like being connected to people. Like you're connected to people. You can walk down the street and people recognize you and talk to you. That feels good. Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, maybe not, not to return too explicitly to Freud or Jung, but I think that's an essential part of being a person. It's just feeling like you belong yeah. in a place where you are. And nothing says you belong, like people knowing you on the street. 100%, 100%. So I think that, I think 
you know, more people. I think, okay, I think a lot of people think like you thought. Let me get out of here. Let me get these things together. Let me go to a big city where I can make my mark. But you can make a mark anywhere as long as you're connecting to people and bringing value to people. And I think, you know, when I came there, I the first one of the first three people off my, the people that were introducing me to people was, oh, you got to meet these three people. And one of them was you, Harrison Barry. <laughs> That's well, cool, though, right? Like, that awesome. was Andrea. That was Andrea Trammell, actually, who you know, who was helped out with Culture Junkies and has been on this one. So you're naming yeah. the three people you need to know and that you were one of them. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if I'm necessarily still that guy who you need to know when you come to Boise. <laughs> but, um, you know, I still feel a little bit. Boise's grown a lot since then. Like, the, yeah. the vibe has completely changed. Yeah. Is that hard? Has that been a sort of little bit of a it struggle? Is. It makes it easier to think about maybe finding another spot somewhere. Um, maybe not in the immediate future, but you know, like Boise is really nice. Uh, it's changing in a lot yeah. of interesting ways. We're getting a lot of folks from from out of town, and they bring, you know, a combination of just California like expectations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people. You know, Californians aren't the problem. I think it's, um, I think it's just the fact that there are so many more people, and we haven't quite figured out figured out how to deal with that, how to make growing it work growing for pains. Us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that can cripple you, right? Like it's, yeah. Um, if you have too many people on the road, in, on the streets, and, and the yeah. you know, the highway district only knows to expand lanes, then totally, you know, you never get the actual city vibe. You don't have buses, you don't have trains. Yeah, I I get that. I think that's very true. I think I don't like I'm no expert on Austin, but I I think that's a lot what happened to them, like a quirky little weird smaller city that became sort of overrun in a way with everybody wanting to go there you get the movie business the film business the tech business from silicon valley you bought all their toxic ways into town and now you you know you have to literally that's like one hour a day if you're passing through austin to get to anywhere else like if you're going that route you got to plan it out because the traffic is like la style traffic that's that's not good city planning it's not forward thinking planning i think you know when i left boise it was the same situation with like the traffic and getting through downtown, getting out to that connector and, and that you're downtown, you're like, oh, this is great. You know, you're in the North End, you've got the leaves and trees and you can bike anywhere. You've got the gorgeous river, but it's hard. Change is hard, I think, for people and cities, I don't think have caught up with change. They don't think about infrastructure. Nobody thought about these blasted electric scooters. You remember when those hit town and now they're sitting in landfills causing like a gigantic economic I mean, environmental disaster. And I remember those scooters. People were just like flying around the streets as crashing into people. Well, what amazes me is how many people, how many people are like, haven't acclimated themselves to it yet. Like I don't see as many Mm. scooters out there. They're more of like, I I see more of them on campus than I do out in town. And that makes um, sense. That makes sense. There's still people who hate them. Right. So (laughs) that little flock of limes that you see kind of in the corner. Right. And there's always that person who's like, I'm going to knock them over. Right. Like yes. Just these, oh my God. You know these vandals running around. Like I hate this new thing. Um, but it's all yeah. I think Jess. I think, I think Jess Flynn from Red Sky PR really, really hates him. But she wouldn't be someone that would go around and knock him over. But if you just mention those to her, her head just like it gets big and explodes. Yeah, you know they're they're like. Um, they're like those weird little booty shorts that like show a little bit too much of your butt, right? And you just kind of look at them and you're like, God, why? <laughs> Yeah, why? Like it, and you don't want to why? shame someone for their fashion, right? But but at the yeah. same time, like I, I'm just kind of like you that's do. not that's not great. 
no it's not great and i i am i have talked about this before and i won't stay on it too long but it's it is it does bother me that those outfits were funded with so much money and not you think there's not one person in that pitch room or the vc that said hey what if this doesn't work what are we going to do with all these scooters just chunk them in a big landfill like i don't think anybody asked that question you know you now and now it's a thing like just a colossal waste of money without any forethought about infrastructure well, there's a whole Instagram account dedicated to the funny ways that Parisians have figured out how to get rid of them. Like they throw them into oh trees God. or like dump them en masse into the sand. Oh my like God. It's... The, Europe, the Europeans are far more creative with like making those statements, I think, than we are. That's what's, I gotta look, have to look that up. That's, that's course, of course a French person would come up with that. That's brilliant. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they're especially adept at the, uh, you know, finding different ways to, to give things they don't like the bird. Yeah. <laughs> So not to make That's a so not true. to make a scooter pun. I love that. I love it. It was good. Very. It was a scooter pun. It was a total scooter pun. So what? What kind of? What's bothering you with technology? What is there any technology that people are talking about in this hype bubble that's really bothering Harrison Barry? I mean, like, should we talk about Chat GPT or AI gener, regenerative AI? I can't make a sentence today. Uh, is there anything that's bugging you in the tech world? I don't know about bugging me, but I think a lot about ChatGPT. Um, okay, let's talk about and that. And one of the, I, so one of my good friends is, he's an educator, and he has been looking for ways to incorporate ChatGPT into his uh, into his lesson plans, right? Like, of Uh-oh. course, his students mm-hmm. are going to play around with this, so you might as well find a way to, like, uh, find a way to... <clears throat> You know, let them use their thing, but but then also challenge them to go above and beyond and like express themselves as opposed to like, yeah. you know, here's my computer generated essay on Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so what's his, where has he ended up on that? So he and I were just kind of spitballing ideas over beers. And one of our favorites was your first draft is, is auto generated, right? But you have to edit and revise it yourself. So the writing process is done by the machine, but you know ultimately the difficult intellectual work is done by by the person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know other ways of of getting people to you know think a little bit harder about that kind of technology is the importance of self expression. You wouldn't believe how many people I know keep journals or diaries, right? Yeah. And they, they do it in yeah. all. They they have all of these elaborate ways of doing that. But if you don't know how to express yourself, then, then that kind of activity, which is highly recommended by your therapist, which is another thing that people are finally kind of getting into these days, um, you know, you're going to be at a loss if you can't if you can't write coherently if you've been relying on on technology to do that for you. And so um, it's about yeah. training people to be able to express themselves personally themselves because that's valuable, and also being able to use the uh, the new technology in productive ways that that you know allow it to do the bulk of the the heavy lifting but then rely on a person to give it that that human touch yeah i think you're it's interesting you are a journalist seasoned journalist for decades and i had an interview with martin bryant who used to be the editor at large of um, the next web in the in europe and we had a kind of similar conversation so i'm interested i'm very interested in hearing journalists say almost the same things like um, you know, that first draft auto-generated is doing the heavy lifting, 
but that idea of using the mental, you know, your own mental capacity to shape that. So he was saying that he didn't have a problem with that in terms of creating that first heavy lifting, you know, where, but definitely the human element of that, applying your own, you know, intelligence and researching and pulling those things together could, could change, could change the way we write. And that's where it could be applicable. But are there any, anything that scares you about it? I worry that that we're going to jump headfirst into that kind of technology without thinking hard about how to deploy it. One, I think it's going to cost a lot mm. of people their jobs, which, you know, is terrible. People need to work. Yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe they don't. Maybe we should all just be on universal basic income, but but maybe that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, I love that. But, uh, I, we could definitely talk about that. <laughs> UBI is so interesting to me. But, um, yeah. but, you know, if you're talking about like auto-generated text, right, or, or AI mm-hmm. text, um, I think, you know, like it can do a lot of work for us, but, uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, I was reading that it's also going to create a lot more busy work for people, right? Because you're, you're yeah. going to have to like go over that text yourself. Yes. Um, yes. No, like no person wrote it. So you can't ask, you know, like where did this information come from? Exactly. And I, as a journalist for, for me, like I, I find that when I interview, if I interview people and I use like an, if I do a lit, real, a real live phone call, um, and there's a transcript that goes along with the recording. It actually takes me like twice as long to go back because when people are talking to you, they're rambling, you know, they're using ums and uhs. And if you just read the trans, if I just looking at the transcript, I'm like, what is this? Yeah. What? And so I found that's, that's really interesting about, uh, uh, yeah, because I think that it actually does make more work for me as a journalist to use to do a phone interview because it, I have to go back and read that transcript and pull things out. And oftentimes when people give me store, when I look at things that people send me, I'm like, I got to really distill this. I still have to go back. Like you said, where did that come from? Yeah. And uh, sometimes, you know, it's cool about the, um, the transcript is sometimes people will say things in there that you maybe misheard the first time around or. That, yeah, you know, no, that's very like, true. Yeah, and and that's neat. But but you're right. Like any, I've started using um, sort of like an auto dictate feature, and, or not an yeah. auto dictate, but like a, a transcribe feature, and it's it takes forever. It's such a pain. Yes, yes. You have, to, you have to pay for it. Like you can't just copy yes. it onto to a Google Doc. Like I'm accustomed. No, it's it's like I'm gonna do this thing on my own terms, and it's just it makes more busy yeah. for me. It yes. makes journalism more painful. It absolutely does and you remember a couple years ago it's like we're gonna help journalists gonna be this translation rev.com and all this stuff and i'm like you guys are literally making my job very difficult and i say to people now i only do email interviews like oh phone call be better for us i'm like well you know then it's not about you it's about me here it's about me and i have had i've had follow-up calls where i'm like okay i just want to clarify one thing does this really what you meant and they're like yeah i'm like great thanks bye like i don't need it anymore because as you know people when they talk they they their word their thoughts and feelings and insights come out differently if they're responding to a question and they're having to type that into a logical format i think that the answers i get that way are far more applicable than just somebody rambling on because they like to hear themselves talk like I'm doing right now. Um, well, and that's yeah. something that I really worry about for journalists and AI. And it's this, this idea that like, let's say that you, um, you know, let's say you're like an AP reporter and, and the Associated Press has made it like allows you to use these AI generated stories for your first draft. 
Well, yeah. like that, a, that AI generated story feels like AI feels no obligation to allow someone to make their best possible point. It doesn't allow them like you, mm-hmm. right? Like you're, you're not, you're not allowing people to have, to put their best foot forward in a story. Yeah. Um, and, you know, regardless of whether, like, of who you're interviewing, it's it's important for someone to be able to represent themselves uh, coherently and as best they can yeah. so that that can be put up against, you know, the, the opposing viewpoint of, uh, and not yeah. to get you know, too bogged down in that. But there's just no soul behind that. And if That's you allow so that true. to be the first draft, then that soullessness tr- uh, translates, at least in part, into the, story. Into the final yeah. draft of the story. 100% because it's hard to, you know editing I think this comes back to a draft that starts with no soul if it's AI generated and then when you're looking at now you're looking at it like with the the organic mushy brain and you're going back and like that doesn't make sense where did that come from like now you've got to go look that up again but I do think that sometimes those drafts do like you said form the tone of that story and like you said if you're an AP journalist who's crushing out 10 of these a day like, how much time are you going to go back to bring soul back to that story? I don't know. Maybe you are. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe you're an especially diligent person. I know a lot of reporters who are especially diligent, but I imagine that those very diligent reporters would be very keen on writing their own first drafts. Yeah. <laughs> for exactly, exactly those reasons. Exactly. So who are the people, like, getting on board with this first draft situation with AI generated? I mean, do you think those are, like, new journalists just, like, the interns there that are like, yeah, we'll fact check it, no problem. Or it wouldn't, sh- it wouldn't shock me if it's yeah. um, if it's publishers. Oh gosh, really? Oh yeah, I, you know it's it's all driven by business. I think reporters are um, by nature very uh, very jealous of the work that they do. They want it. They they love the integrity of the thing. Yeah. Um, publishers, I and I know I can name some publishers by name, but I won't. But the, <laughs> but the idea is like. Hey, we have to protect the bottom line. And if this mm-hmm. technology saves you time, then I don't have to pay you as much. Right? Yeah. That's that um, cost jobs point down there you were talking about earlier. But here's here's what's so interesting about that is that I don't think AI is actually going to save anyone any time. I think it just means that you are you are reading over something a machine wrote for you that much harder. Right. I think it actually mm-hmm. like instead of saving you time, it adds to your burden. Yeah. So suddenly you are forced to do more with less billable hours. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think I think that's. I see a lot of people out there like raw raw, and I'm like, man, is it like we already have enough problem with journalistic integrity today? And you're right, journalists get paid not a lot of money, and and um, it does add to your billable hours for sure. And you're not going to get to charge for those billable hours, so. I think it's a, I mean, I don't know, like everyone thought email was going to save the day, but I mean, look at all of these, th- these tools we have now. It's like, I do, tw- you know, we all doing twice as much work with even people commenting about how Slack was going to, you know, help control your workflow, but it's a lot of work to keep up with Slack, like, and your email and uh, this and, and this and Teams. And uh, I do feel like when I turn off my phone or digitally disconnect, I'm like, yep, mm-hmm, I need I'll see you guys in like three days. I don't care because you're constantly like hopping around to these different things. And like you, you freelance, you're you're working at Boise State and I do the same, a lot of different things in the air. And I, it's, it's difficult to find the balance between those and not be like 
busy, busy, be productively busy. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, like part of what's, I mean, roll it back to the, to the introduction of the copy machine, right? The first Xeroxes. <laughs> yeah. right? and, and everyone in the, um, everyone in the typist pool looking at that giant Xerox like this. is. Oh yeah. Oh God. Good and, point. And it, it was, it was ultimately the end of their jobs, but think about it. Like what is the most unreliable piece of equipment in any office? It's always the printer. The, the printer it, is what? always jamming, breaking God. down. It's not syncing yes. with your computer. Always. It's the biggest piece of garbage. And it has been since, what is it, like the, the 60s, the 70s when they introduced Seven, it? Like, yeah, late terrible. 60s, yep. It's all, you're right. Even today, just even today, like yeah. you can't, I mean, what's the percentage of time that thing doesn't work? I had to get rid of my HP double jet, whatever, because I was sick of it not working, sick of it not connecting, the ink, the paper, like I'm forget it. I'll just go to like Kinko's or wherever they're called now and have print something. It's just easier. Like, yeah. and I also, think seriously, think, it's 30% of the time. Like it's just, yeah, I like, think you're this right. thing just doesn't work. Oh, and we're so addicted to this stuff too. We just like do it blindly. We just keep doing these same processes over and over again your body literally regenerates itself and makes a new body every decade or so and these spongy little things in our mind just keep in these narrow lanes we so i i saw somebody last night on twitter she's an activist and she's um from syria so she can't show her face but she was talking about how concerned she was about chat gpt and like how that could you know like leverage poor incomes or people that are leveraged politically like to create these pieces that would endanger them or you know because people just believe whatever they read these days apparently and uh i think it's in you can talk to a lot of different people and go a lot of different directions with this yeah i i, I think that there are serious um i think there are serious we have to be very cautious about this and, and, and yeah. you know, to return to the idea of like of, of the of of the office printer, right? It's this, it's this idea that here is a technology that doesn't work, but because someone who doesn't necessarily have to use that technology looks at it and says, that's going to save me time. And therefore it's going to save me money. Like it yeah. doesn't realize that downstream it's costing someone else a lot of time and someone else a lot of money. That's so true. I don't think they think much about downstream anymore, to be honest. I don't know if they ever did. Like, yeah, I don't think so. It's easy. I mean, like think of those, so easy i mean it seems like that's what everybody's doing i and then you i love your analogies like the copy machine i think about all the people that had jobs like transcribing scripts like back to the monks and then moving to the gutenberg can you imagine how hated he was like they were like oh, this God. technology uh it's putting me out of work well yeah and, uh, you know this idea that like anyone could be literate because books could be cheap <laughs> Right. Yeah. And so suddenly people who sh like, I don't know, like, are <laughs> this is maybe yeah. like mean of me, Go but like are there people it. out there who probably like shouldn't have access to that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I knew where you were <laughs> like, going and I'm like, say it, go ahead, say Harrison. Uh, yes, because we could, we could bring. I feel bad. This. I retract that. That's so mean. Okay. Okay. I'm going to redact cruel. it, but we're not. No, it's okay because it's okay. I'll be the crueler one. How about that? I will let you be less cruel because yes, there that idea of him giving people the power to read, create knowledge, to make them literate. But you look at what's happening in Florida today with the books and the and the and banning of 
curriculum in schools is designed to make people less knowledgeable, less literate. You could, yeah. we could take this full circle. So Gutenberg to DeSantis, like in the public school system in Florida, come on, let's look at it because they don't want people to be knowledgeable because well, if, actually there, they want, they actually, there was a thing on Twitter. I can't, I don't remember who said it, but I'll find it and put it in the notes. But he was saying like, if you have to read, there's something wrong with you. Like you should know what you know. Which... <laughs> Which is anti-intellectual. And, and there are a couple of points yeah. to that, right? Like, I think that, that reading is reading is a gift because it allows you to develop intellect. But there are people out there who do, and I'm going to define intellect by, like, Jacques Barsoum's terms here. But it's, <laughs> but it's this, this, this idea that it's a set of intellectual habits, right? It's, a, it's mm -hmm. intellectual hygiene, right? And mm -hmm. if you don't have that kind of intellectual hygiene, you become essentially like Ann and Bundy who walks around... Who, I'm going to have to explain mm -hmm. who Ann and Bundy is to people, but he's a real Idaho original. He walks around with his pocket constitution and he imagines that that is the totality of all law. And Oh, wow. I'm like, no, I mean, we have like thousands of volumes of, uh, of constitutional law out there. Like there are ways in which this is complicated that don't fit into your breast pocket. So you can't just crack open yeah. your pocket constitution and scream, you're violating my second amendment rights. Like that's all they scream. Look anyway. it up. Um, Talk to a yeah. lawyer. Yeah pocket constitution damn yeah. that's awesome sorry i just i just used a swear word sorry listeners <laughs> um <laughs> so i have to put explicit content on this now yeah so where were you going this reading is a gift intellectual hygiene got this guy bundy what's his what's his name uh, ammon bundy okay so okay, i'll be he, looking him up so he's a scary dude so his yeah. um long story short he led he was a part of a standoff in nevada and then he led another standoff at the malheur uh, wildlife refuge um, a few years ago. He's kind of a quasi sovereign citizens type. Um, uh -huh. There's a there's like a strain of Mormonism that he subscribes to that's also very okay. uh, like anti government. Um, mm -hmm. Really a scary guy. But uh, but it's mm -hmm. this idea that like oh well I like I I read this one book so I must know all things right. It's, yes, exactly. That's the thing. I read one book so I know everything. This book fits my beliefs. So this is this is the Constitution. My pocket constitution. Yeah. And Dude, you should coin that term. Is that your term? Because I'm giving it to you. The pocket constitution? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I feel like that's in pretty wide circulation. I have not heard it before, and I've only heard it from you, so therefore it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look it up and do it right. But I, I, oh, man, you've just blown my mind, actually. I don't even have another question for you. Just. <laughs> oh, well, you know what, what I worry about? at the end of the day is that there there are people who know just enough about the world to decide that there are things about it that they don't like and that they want to destroy right and as mm -hmm. opposed to like the intellectually hygienic way of looking at the world and that it's like oh well pluralism matters right and that i should i should embrace the fact that like there are other people and they are different from me and that they may believe different things that we, but we all live within a system that allows us to negotiate those differences yeah, yeah. I think that's what we I think that's what we lose when we have literacy without intellect. I agree with you. I think that is a very beautiful statement and also very scary and sad at the same time. It's terrifying and it's you know, it's especially prevalent here in Boise, but it's it's everywhere. Well, I think it's everywhere and I think uh you know, I 
I don't, the news makes me just so angry. Sometimes I don't look at it anymore, but I, I get very fired up around probably the same things you get fired up about, but you know, this keeping information for people and knowledge and you're right about literacy and intellect. I mean, I read about all, every single day, there seems to be an assault on um, people keeping them, you know, not informed, uh, keeping them in, in a place that they want them so they can control them, which actually, you're probably better suited to talk about this than I am, but sort of what they've been doing forever. <laughs> I mean, there's not that much change. We're just living in the different times with more technology and different clothes. Yeah, you know, we um, like Boise, like I'd said, Boise is changing really fast. And a lot of people who are coming here are people who realize that they can leave their, um, they can leave California, but still keep their California wages by working remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, more power to you if you can do that. That's pretty great. And, yeah. yeah. Boise is not bad. Yeah. But Boise is getting very expensive. Like housing prices are not low. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's pricey, but if you have California money, right? If you're a then it's not pricey. In a place and it's very yeah. Exactly. Um, but you know, we get a lot of these people who are just refugees from pluralism. They want to go to a place that Mm. is explicitly conservative, right? A place where, you know, ideas, not bullets are the enemy. And like, it's, it's a little bit frustrating to watch because those people bring their own notions of conservatism that are actually at odds with the more homegrown version of conservatism you find in, Mm. you know, a big open spaces place like Idaho. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. That's a very notable difference. Oh man, I yeah, I was I talking to someone in London the other day, and they said, you know, how do you do? You miss be living in Europe? And I said, yeah, I do miss living it, but you know, I'm liking where I am. And I said, I do want to go back. And then he goes, oh, well, listen, it's terrible over here too. <laughs> Everything is bad everywhere lately. It seems you look around at different countries and different politicians and different agendas, and it's it just seems like we're in this period of time where. Uh, I don't know. Things just feel under attack to me. Just feel so much more harsh and cruel and just like Jesse Raphael talk show from the 80s where people are like, you know, screaming on camera all the time. Yeah, um, there is a there's a sort of emergent kind of reactionary right. And what's unfortunate, and, and you know, in the States especially, is that, um, you know, a more traditional brand of conservatism has allied itself with that reactionary right in mm-hmm. order to like, retain political power. And now the reactionaries are starting to, you know, they're they're sliding into the driver's seat. And that's where you get, you know, the Donald Trumps, right? That's where you get the, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the yeah, Ron and you always make the... Of the world. Yeah. Yeah, the I politics just, of resentment. <laughs> there was this article in the, oh. in, uh, the Atlantic. Of, did you did you read that one about um, about like you know like you know Republicans are jerks, right? It's like a party of jerks. No, no, but um, I but I think I saw that in my little snippet that comes through, and I bookmarked it, and all the millions of things I'm trying to keep up. <clears throat> excuse me, in reading. Yeah, I, I you know I, I I believe firmly in the in the legitimacy of the conservative impulse, right? Like to conserve, right? To to wait and see. Um, yes. You know, like um, prudence. I, I think that these are valuable things. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but that's a that's an impulse that you know it, you know like any it, sometimes it needs to be protected from itself. Yeah, I that's the really good point. It does need to be protected from itself, and I I um. I, I, you know, for a long time, I, I didn't want to tell people I lived in Dallas because of all the politics that were going on here in Texas. And then I was finally like, oh, forget it, right? There's a lot of voices like mine, and Texas is running purple anyway at the moment. And 
Um, if we don't like speak up and be, just gotta speak up where you are because I do feel like there is a lot of anger and resentment and hostility and you're, you're right, politics of resentment. I think that's absolutely what's happening right now. Yeah, and you know, before I, you know, before I'm accused of like ignoring the sins of of the left or something, I, I would note that the FBI does not consider the emergent, you know, like <laughs> Maoist guerrillas to be the number one threat yeah. to the United States. It's it's yeah. coming from one direction. I, one direction, just one direction, and I I think of okay, gosh, we're gonna keep going down. Like I was gonna go to January sixth, but I'm like, nope, not gonna go there. Um, no, it's so depressing. Because, oh my. Like, yeah, it's so depressing. Thank you for saying it. You got to say it first. So depressing. I can't understand it. Honestly, I try to wrap my head around it all the time. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Like if the, that crowd looked a different way or if that crowd was like all like, first of all, I can't see no words, zero words. What if that crowd was black? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know? they'd all be dead. Like it would, it would be totally different, and that's what infuriates me. Like, how did we get here? Well, yeah, and, and I think it's it's because we extend a lot of grace to white people. I mean, I believe they call that oh. privilege. But but I think you know another piece of it is that these people, like people, have legitimate concerns about their quality of life, right? Like things yeah. are like there are a lot of Americans who do not live well, and um, no, I know. Unfortunately, they only have like their anger and resentment to go on, and it's it's. It's simply because solutions are not being offered. Like no one's seriously talking about ways in which we can make the plight of like living, working Americans better. It's just I, you know, I, I it's it's a it's a one way dialogue, and I honestly don't think. And this sounds terrible as someone who worked in politics in the '80s in Washington D.C. for a Democratic senator, Senator Sam Nunn. But I just feel like people don't care anymore, and that's what's so scary to me. It's like. Okay, maybe I'm watching too much like uh, The Last of Us, these apocalyptic like scenarios, but I I just don't feel like anybody's got our back anymore. <sighs> and maybe a... maybe that's wise or maybe that's not wise, but maybe that's just age or years. I felt like it when I was younger that there was something there, but I don't now. Yeah, and I think it's because very little of the discourse around you know po around policy just isn't actionable. Right. It's, mm -hmm. it's tough to get things done when you have, you know, intransigence on the other side. It's, it's not and it's not people <laughs> arguing over what is actually like what what policy position is actually going to deliver the most benefit to people. It's mm -hmm. no, like we don't want to do anything. We want yeah. we want you know, the role of government to be whittled down to something that, you know, to quote Grover Norquist, you can drown in a bathtub. And, you know, that's not a, that's not a solid position in a post. <laughs> that's just a very shaky yeah. position for like a, a, a post new deal world. And you just, and it comes you know, back to the, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I, like I, you just can't, you just can't roll back that far. You know, like this revanchiste impulse doesn't mean anything. Like it's just anger. Yeah. It's just anger. And I, I feel like it kind of the office printer situation where, you know, it doesn't work. It saves time. We're just going to use it anyway, regardless of all the pain and suffering that it causes people down the road. I don't I don't find anything that's uplifting or hopeful with what's happening on either side. I mean, I mean, sorry. I mean, forget the Republican conservative side, but even on the Democratic side, it feels a little like empty to me and uh, like nobody's home. <laughs> well, uh, you know, like, wouldn't you wouldn't you step out for a smoke break if 
if it just <laughs> felt like nothing was getting done. You know? Yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I just don't feel like anybody's there. And I, that's what's so concerning to me. I'm like, hello, are you guys out there? Is somebody going to say something? Like, speak up. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it just doesn't, to doesn't go anywhere. It is tough to watch because the things that, I, that's why I wanted to ask you, like, what in tech is bugging you right now? And I think this chat GPT conversation is so interesting. And I, I feel like everybody's just, like, fixated on what Elon Musk is doing and his ridiculous waste of money on Twitter and then tanking it and everybody's all up in arms and going to flee to another website. And, and at the same time, we're pus- putting up pictures of ourselves that are generated by Lenza so we can see what we look like in AI. And by the way, AI thinks we should all weigh like 110 and we should look like little mini porn stars, also AKA a fairy princess. Like, I don't even know where that's coming from. And we're so obsessed with this stuff that we're losing track of, to me, everything, reality, like people just want to plunge themselves into the metaverse so they don't have to deal with this world. But that's not, that's not living. That's not going to help us in the long run. Well, I mean, oh my God, part... that was a rant. Yeah, have one. Have it. I just did. Oh I'm just God. sitting here like eating my corn. But like, <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, I, you know, you bring up Elon Musk and, you know, there's a contingent of people who are, you know, seriously hoping or who are seriously hoping that Elon Musk would save Twitter because, he was a billionaire. Surely he knew what he was doing, um, and he tanked it because Elon Musk is a bona fide idiot. But, totally, but, bona fide. But people, there, there are a lot of people out there who seriously believe that the change that they need in their lives is going to come from billionaires and yes. not from a public entity like the government. It's but that and that's is crazy. That is so oh, it's so crazy, and also it's a bad, bad trend. Like. Those, you're right, they believe they're going to save everything. Have we forgotten that all this crap is free? Like, we got along fine without it before, but all of a sudden, like, you're up in arms. Just don't use it then. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you were talking about, like, free speech and, like, oh, my God, Twitter, like, Twitter removed Donald Trump. Yeah, because because Twitter isn't a free speech zone. It's not a public thing. Oh, 100%. It's a company. It's, it's yeah, and it's like, you know what? Break. It's because it's 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 a company that the everybody forgets. Same thing with Facebook. All, all the junkies that are on Facebook or Instagram, also owned by Facebook. I'm gonna call I'm not gonna call them Meta because they're ruining the word. Um, but it's a company that wants your data to commoditize it and sell to other people. You might as well hook yourself up to the copper top battery in the Matrix at this point in time, and just like open up your veins because that's what's happening. But well, yet, Bezos and Musk and all these guys—they're the ones making. T- they're the ones we think can save everything. And I don't. Sure, I love my Amazon packages delivered here during a snowy day, but you know, should probably stop using Amazon too. Yeah, and you know, alternatives are <laughs> cropping up. But you know, my my personal form of resistance is uh, I have this massive library. Oh, I love and, this. Uh, yeah, and I have, I've started to like crack open like rereading books. Like I'm. I'm reading Swan's Way right now. Oh, I but, love uh, that. I'm, I'm going to dedicate 2023 to just reading the like the works of high modernists and uh, the internet uh, can suck it. Okay. I love this. So let's now t- t- shift. You and I, I feel my blood pressure going up. But how many books are in this library? And by the way, I love that you have your own personal form of resistance. And it's books. Oh, my God. It's brilliant. How many well, books? Oh, um, it's thousands. It's probably two or three thousand, and I've gotten rid of probably Whoa. a third of them as I, or probably sold off about a third of them to move into my new place in the East End. Oh. And um, so right now, the, the collection in my home is 
I don't know, maybe like two or 300 volumes. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a substantial number of books are in storage. Yeah. And is that a little bit of every, um, the storage because you don't have the space or the girlfriend it's will a, let him come in the house or what? <laughs> it's a little bit of both. Um, I could okay. dedicate all of our space to, to books, but yeah. she would balk and it would be rude. Oh no. Books are like, they're not only are they physically beautiful to look at, but you just walk by and I feel like they're just like yelling at you. Hey, pick me up. Did you hear about this story? Like, read me, read me. I envision my books talking to me. I don't have as many as you do anymore moving back from Europe and around because they're very heavy, but I'm trying to rebuild my collection. How, what are you, what would you say like your book collection mainly consists of? Is it a great variety of books, fiction, nonfiction or? Yeah. So, um, you know, we can talk about the big chunks of things. I have this a pretty substantial number of the classics, right? So you have like everything mm-hmm. from the Iliad and the Odyssey to Dante's Inferno. Um, love. I'm kind of a closet medievalist. I do love a good I love. Uh, bit of like late antiquity to early modernity. Um, you know, psychology, psychiatry, of course, Freud and okay. Jung. Yeah, uh, of course. <laughs> the high modernists. I have all the Dune books. Um, oh, yeah. Everything by Vardis Fisher. Oh uh, yeah. Let's see here. What and I'm just looking at, you know, what's in Yeah, I love it. One You're of gazing my at your books. Yeah. Yeah. Um quite a bit of sci-fi. I do love sci-fi. Yeah, um, me too, me too, me too. I love sci-fi as well. What's your favorite what's your what's your most I hate it when people say what's your favorite writer because I can't name one, but what's the writer, the first sci-fi writer that jumps out in your mind when I ask that question? <sighs> okay, there will be still hard. It's still hard. So there are three and they're kind of jumping out at me right now. But my, okay, first, was, my first was Isaac Asimov. Um, oh, yeah. You have to read the Foundation Trilogy. It's it's perfect for what it is. Um, it's the okay. gold standard. Um, I would love to turn people on to Dan Simmons, the author of Hyperion. Yes, I've read Dan Simmons. Yeah. Okay, um, we're going to put it in the notes. <laughs> Yeah, think about, uh, you know, if the Canterbury Tales were told by people uh, on a plate or on a, on a foreign planet while being stalked by a monster that can travel through time. Yeah, I'm in. And and uh, number three, I've got to go with Frank Herbert. Uh, the first, oh, the first I'm three looking at, Dune yeah, books Frank are Herbert. hard classics. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's those. That's a really good, that's a good, strong sci-fi send-up right there i love the doom books i i actually been thinking about rereading them again um because i read them like 10 years ago as a different frame of mind but i think i wouldn't mind reading them again i'm looking yeah you're you're really inspiring me here i'm gonna put all of these in the show notes for this sci-fi authors people should start with because i think everyone needs to take up this personal form of resistance in reading and you do see a lot of that I do see a lot of that for people that I follow or connect with, mostly journalists and writers. But they're like, I'm reading this many books in 2023 just on this particular genre of writing. And I, yeah, we got to do it. We have to do it. Otherwise, where are we going to be? Let me ask you a question. If you could tell, if you could tell listeners, like, you have to read this one book <laughs> in 2023, what's it going to be? Oh, my God. <clears throat> Oh, yes. Okay. Her name is Siri Hofstadt. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but um, uh, she's a Dutch writer and she wrote this book called Memories of the Future. And it's written by herself about herself in the future from when she started writing. She was in her 20s living in New York City. 
So it's historical, but it's fiction because she writes about her life now, but also connecting her two different selves from 20 to like 50 together. I think it's an amazing book. It was recommended to me by someone that I actually don't like so much. So I wasn't sure that it'd be a good book, but I recommended it to everybody. So that'd be a book that I would recommend. What about you? I'm going to get a little crazy here. Um, I just finished a book called. (laughs) Um, Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) But, uh, but, uh, I would tell people with a penchant for paperbacks, there is, and I'm pulling it out from the shelf right now. Sinclair okay, yeah, I Lewis's, love it. It Can't oh. Happen Here. Sinclair Lewis is one of my favorite writers. Um, really? Very active in like the 20s and 30s. Yeah. Um, fabulous style. That's my, that's my favorite genre, the 20s and 30s. Yeah. It, it imagines a fascist takeover of the United States and like what that would look like. Um, <laughs> well, hello. Yeah, uh, but it was it was like terrifying. But but it reminded me that, that a lot of those kinds of forces that um, you know w- would take the system that we have and revert it into something oppressive and dystopian. Like those are those are mm-hmm. alive and well. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, if someone was looking for a project, I would turn them on to the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. Um, oh, if you okay, ever wondered, I have a... sent... go ahead. Sorry, oh, Peloponnesian oh, no. War by who? By Thucydides. Um, okay. There's a uh, Stephen Lattimore translation really plays up the kind of the, the, the voice of the author as opposed to like here as a classical text. But um, as a child of the late 90s and early 2000s, I worried about, um, you know, how the United States was deploying the idea of democracy, right? Like, let's invade Iraq and in- install mm-hmm. democracy there. And um, the Peloponnesian War is all about Athens, a democracy, as it becomes this ultimately toxic figure in the Greek world and how the rest of the Greek world rose up to try to stop it. And this, this parasitic imperialist impulse, um, it's a dense read. It's very hard. But if you're looking for a project that will change the way you think about you know, both the past and the present, I mean, I can think of nothing better. I actually love that. And I am going to put, I definitely going to put all these in the notes because I do think people are looking like, I, I think people are searching for books to read. And I think we are at a very interesting time in history, politics, culture, where that story is applicable, right? Where, um, actually I have the Sinclair Lewis, it can't happen here on my bookshelf, right above a woman of 30. (laughs) (laughs) By Balzac, what? which I find very interesting. Actually, the stack, by the way, the stack on there is a Gore Vidal book, The Diary of a Nain, Tama Janowitz, Henry Miller, The Colossus of, I have my, don't have my glasses on, Marquisi, right? Then A Woman of 30 by Balzac and Sinclair Lewis, It Can't Happen Here. That's that order of that stack. You've got to love Balzac. Uh, nice <laughs> love, like, love. Her diaries, so fun. Oh, man. I just, I actually, I, I love books. Next to that stack is uh, uh, um, Lorca, Selected Poems by uh, Federico Ooh. Lorca. Italio Calvino, who I actually really like a lot. And Which one? Um, and then it is a collection of sand. Okay. I have yeah. uh, Invisible Cities, which is a very beautiful book. Oh, that's a, I don't have that one. That is a beautiful book. And then under that is, I have to get a, uh, gosh, I can't even read it. It's, uh, oh, Childress. Erskine Childress, and I have to get up from my chair. I hope my microphone's still working. It is the riddle. I don't have my glasses. The riddle of the sand. Then Elkie Hartley, the go-between, and then the autumn of the patriarch by Marquez, which huh. I didn't like so much. Actually, I found it hard to read. 
Yeah, weird, weird combination of books, right? Yeah. No, I mean, you, but you know, like that's, that's, that's what it's like to be a person who reads, right? Is that, is that you're always <laughs> picking up things that other people recommend. Yeah. Things yeah. that just interest you on the fly. And I, th I think that's like, a, yeah. like an important piece of being a reader that it, that isn't acknowledged very much. I agree. It's, it gets I agree. weird and, and eclectic. Yeah. And I love the question that you asked, like, what would you recommend? Because this book by Siri, I would never have found it, right? It was, it's a little obscure. It's, it's, it's a very strange, she's married to somebody, a famous writer. I, I can't remember, but it was a real, so well written. Like I couldn't put it down. It was, it was deep. Like it wasn't like a pop read at all. It was thoughtful. It was just, it was, it was, I would call it a medium read. Cause to me, there's like, you talked about your, the Greek book by Fusides. It was like, it's a very slow, I call that a slow read. You know, and then I generally don't like pop reads in general anyway, but. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes you're in the mood for something that's a page turner and that's, that's good. Yeah, like it helps yeah. you focus. Like reading is just good for <laughs> your brain. Um, yeah, but sometimes it it's about you. like, yeah, it's about focusing and, and allowing something to sort of like get in, in under your skin, allowing something yeah, to Yeah, get in the you. cracks. Get in this little yeah. folds in the gooey part of your brain for sure. Well, um, I could, I could, oops, just a little chime there on my computer. Um, I could literally talk to you all day, but I'm going to let you move about your morning, finish your cornflakes, whatever, get on your bicycle, ride around Boise, convince your girlfriend to get those books back into your house. Um, someday. Uh, yeah, someday. And I want to thank you so much for letting us have access to your brain, hearing you talk about all of these things. It's It's so heartwarming for me it feels so good to talk to you Harrison you're just you're one of those people that you want to have over and just go sit you down feed you dinner just start talking just go well it's been so long and just lovely reconnecting <laughs> yeah totally we'll have to I I uh yeah I may come out for a tree fort uh-oh I'm telling everybody but I will let you know if I do come out there so thank you so much if you if you do, we absolutely have to kick it. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. We're, hey, we're 100% going to kick it. We should do a podcast out there. We should kick it for sure. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Thank you again. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Another Wednesday has come and gone and another great guest on Tiny Little Victories. Thank you for listening to that conversation with Harrison Berry. One of the things I love about Harrison is that you can zig and zag all over the place on any topic and he can talk about it. He can talk about it thoughtfully. He can talk about it with humor. And it just reminds me of having somebody over, just sit down on your sofa and you just start talking and you're zigging and you're zagging. I love that real conversation. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. And one way to show that you enjoyed the episode is to go on any of the apps that you listen to Tiny Little Victories on and you can like us, you can rate us, you can leave a comment, yay comments and subscribe and follow. You can do a lot of things apparently. Maybe just like two out of those things would be great. But you can also go to our website at tinylittlevictoriespodcast.com. You can see every episode on there so you can pick and choose depending on what you're in the mood for. See everybody's very handsome and pretty faces and choose what you'd like to listen to that day, whatever you're in the mood for. Are you in the mood for the ingenious Jamila Knowles? Are you in the mood for the amazing Anna Choi who talks about how, you know, it's just important to create happiness. Also, you can re-listen to podcasts that you might have missed. So go back in there, take a shuffle, get back in the Wayback Machine and see what you like. And on that note, I will say thank you again for listening to Tiny Little Victories 
and we'll see you next week.